you will turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, we will be looking this morning at verses 19 through 25. And if you are joining us for the first time, again, welcome. We are in the middle of a series um, called Life Together. And we're looking at three aspects of life together in, uh, in the church, namely community, truth, and mission. And we are still looking at community, and this morning we will be looking at life on life. Small group, big deal. Uh, and we're going to talk about, um, in a little bit specifically, our ministry of small groups in this church and what... That means and why that's important to us. The key words for our children, our worshipers in training, our group, community, and growth. So thus far, we've talked about um, several things. One, relationships in general. The one-on-one relationships that we have with with others. uh, Primarily with others within the church. What do those look like? How do we work these relationships out? How must we strive harder to have genuine, faithful, life-giving relationships with each other? Then we looked at the family, the roles of husbands and wives and parents and children, and what the Lord calls us to as we, uh, as we love one another in the home and as we, uh, as we live faithfully unto the Lord as husbands and wives and children. Last week we looked at the biblical instruction for hospitality as an individual means to these relationships with our brothers and sisters and also with non-believers. We spoke of uh, last week that it is as a result of God's hospitality toward us in Christ Jesus that we are then motivated to show hospitality toward others. And so we've been sort of building to, uh, building on these uh, these relationships. And this morning we will look at uh, at small groups, at uh, the structure that we have developed to help us with life on life relationships, to be hospitable, to share our sin, to share our struggles, to repeatedly come back to one another with encouragement and accountability and exhortation. And all that we do as we meet together. So, in some ways, you're going to hear um, a broken record this morning. Because we cannot have community without genuine relationships. But I'll probably also head in a direction that you're not expecting. So hang with me. We will talk about small groups this morning, I promise. But I think we need to do some work before we get there. So Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. I want to, as I read through this, I want you to listen for two things. Listen for the statements of, we have, and listen for the statements of, let us. We have and let us. So let's read, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So he begins in verse 19, writing, Since we have. What is he talking about? Well, earlier there is talk of the Old Testament tabernacle. We read about this throughout the Old Testament. And basically, very simply, the Old Testament tabernacle, there was a, an outer court in which, um, in which all were able to go into, they were all able to enter into, and then from there, as it narrowed down, as it gets smaller, less and less uh, people are allowed in. So from the outer court, then you move to the holy place. This is where the, the scrolls were kept, and only the priests were allowed into the holy place. And then from there into the Holy of Holies, behind a veil where only the high priest was allowed one time per year. And this is where the Bible tells us was the actual presence of God, separated from everything else by a veil, by a curtain. And if anyone went behind the veil without permission as the high priest, then they were to be struck dead. Very important understanding of the Old Testament tabernacle because he's saying that now under the new covenant, because of Christ, because of Christ having come, because of Christ having given His life as a once for all sacrifice for the sins of His people, the veil is no longer there. The veil was torn in two at His death. And now we are given full access to God and can, with confidence, enter the Holy of Holies. In other words, spiritually, we now have access to God, to the presence of God through Jesus Christ. This is one reason why we pray in Jesus' name as we pray. It is through Christ that we have access to The Father. So now we see the tabernacle system is gone. The veil is torn. And by the blood of Christ, all who are in Christ are allowed to approach the throne of grace with confidence. We no longer have a system of ritual. We no longer have a special place in which we must go. We have Christ. And so the Spirit has opened up to us the ability to now enter into the holy place. Not by our own works, not by our own efforts, but by the blood of Jesus. Why? Well, he writes of this in verses 17 and 18. It says, I will remember the sins, their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. In other words, the Lord is saying, whatever you want to bring, whatever you want to offer, I am not interested. Debt has been paid in Jesus' death. So whatever religious activity you bring, I'm not interested. Whatever works you bring, I'm not interested. Sin for the believer has been paid for. 
Not because you did something, but because Christ did everything. This is something great for us to rejoice in. So every time we, as individuals, as believers, are in that messed up place where we, we get into our head, I, I, just need to, I just need to do better here. I just need to try harder. I need to work harder. I need to do more. I need to stop that. That might be so, but without God for your glory and for my holiness and for my fullness of joy... Purify me. Make me holy. Without that, without recognizing that nothing in our lives changes, nothing that we want to see different happens without God doing that work, then God simply saying here, I'm, I'm just not interested in your works of those which you are trying to do to earn something. So don't plead, I did this and I will do that. Plead Christ. Plead, Christ has done this for me. Christ has accomplished this on my behalf. And as a result, now I can walk in faithfulness. Now I can see change in my heart. I can see change in my life because Christ has accomplished all that is necessary in order for that to take place. So we have, as he writes, we have a great high priest who handled all our sin. Not on an altar with the blood of bulls and rams and goats, but on a cross with his own blood. The blood of Jesus Christ. So the tabernacle and the rules that went with the tabernacle and the ceremonial laws have all given way to grace and mercy that comes in Jesus Christ. But here's, here's the problem with us in understanding that. Let me illustrate this with um, what I perceive to be common amongst grandmothers and computers. My grandmothers are, uh, all my grandparents are still alive. We're very blessed in that. They're near and around 86 years old now. I am pretty certain that um, I could explain everything to my grandmother about how the computer is used, what it does to its fullest potential, and she would look at it and, uh, after all this instruction, never figure out exactly how to turn it on. Maybe, after a few weeks of instruction, she might be able to turn it on and maybe send an email uh, without putting spaces in between the words and kind of all gargled together because just couldn't figure out the typing thing. So in other words, she might be able to say, this is what they tell me this is supposed to do. This is how this is supposed to work. This is the full potential of what this can be, but I don't use it to its full potential not using it at its full potential. So I can tell that maybe it's supposed to do something or it can do something, but it's simply not doing so. And when it comes to grace, this is a lot of what happens with us. 
We get it, perhaps. We can talk about it. But it gets really difficult or confusing when we are called to start living in it. So we keep going back to the tabernacle. We keep going back to the rules. We keep going back to the ceremonial law because we're not really sure what it means to follow Jesus in the new covenant full of grace and full of mercy. It's our default. We default back to the tabernacle. We default back to the law. But we have grace. We have means of grace. Instead, we often go in the opposite direction because it's too difficult for us, especially for us in our culture, in our understanding of, uh, of we need to w- work hard for everything and earn everything that we want to apply that to our spiritual lives. That if I want Christ, I need to work for Christ. I need to give all that I have to earn His favor. We have a hard time wrapping our minds around forgiven, no condemnation, no work, no consequences, all of this in Christ, period. Does He call us to good works? Yes. But how do those come? Because we first recognize the grace that He has given in redeeming us in the first place that we did nothing to warrant. We did nothing to deserve. So I think for a lot of us, we can talk grace, but our default is not to walk in it. We know of its full potential, but we simply don't use it to its full potential. But the great thing that the text explains is since we are in the new covenant, we are bought by the blood of Christ, then he says three statements that begin with, let us. Verse 22, he writes, Let us draw near. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Verse 23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And verse 24, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So we see three let us statements. Because of Christ, because of grace, because of redemption, because the tabernacle and all the rules and all the ceremonial law is put behind because of Christ, as a result, let us do these things. Now the first two, verses 22 and 23, we're going to hit later on in the series. So I'm not going to talk about those this morning. But what I do want to focus on is verses 24 and 25. Let us consider... How to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In other words, let us figure out how to do life with each other in such a way that we are stimulated on, pushed on pushed toward more love and more good deeds in our lives as a result of Christ. How do we do it? We do it by meeting together, encouraging one another all the more as we see the day drawing near. Okay, now there's a common misconception 
of what church is. Because you come here, your attendance here, no matter how frequent it is, does not in and of itself make you a part of this church. The church is believers in Jesus Christ gathering for the worship of God, not just one day a week, but in our lives from day to day. And the local church is not just people gathering in a building to listen to preaching, and that's good and important, but that is only part of what it is to be the church. The church is a gathering of men and women, believers in Jesus Christ, in covenant relationship with one another and Christ to do life together. So you can come here every week, but if you're not connected to the body the rest of the week, Monday through Saturday, then you're more like a friend than than family. You're more of an acquaintance than you are in the family. D.A. Carson wrote this. He says, We cannot imagine that the church gathers for worship on Sunday morning if by this we mean that we then engage in something that we have not been engaging in the rest of the week. New covenant worship terminology prescribes constant worship. Constant worship. And we talked about how that gets worked out in our families, in our homes, and now as we look to smaller groups within the church. So, what is the writer of Hebrews saying with this? Serving the body, meeting together, stirring one another to love and good deeds is where maturity and nearness to Christ and grace occurs. So if you're just here, that, that's not the church. That's not the fullness of Christ. You're not doing it. You're not living this thing out. You're not walking in the specific means that God has given us of His grace. And some of you may be hearing this and thinking, well, if that's true, then God must hate me because I do not want that. I do not desire that. I don't want to be around these people any more than I am on Sunday mornings. That is a bad and false idea. To think that when God commands something, it's calculated to make us miserable. God's commands are for our good. Everything God commands of us is for our good. God doesn't need your service to improve His attitude or His abilities as God. So He doesn't tell us to do things because He has needs. He commands us what to do because we have needs. And by His grace, He has given us one another. And by His grace, He calls us to walk in His grace by taking advantage of having one another. Look, I will give you this. One of the most difficult and confusing relationships that you will have in this life is your relationship to the church. But, Philippians 1.27, the Apostle Paul writes this. 
Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So, this means life together, side by side, in like-hearted unity. (laughs) And you're probably thinking, yeah, right. (laughs) Like-hearted unity. Look, something happens when we do life together. It's sort of this collision, and it's, it's really ugly sometimes. Described it a few weeks ago as a beautiful mess. We are a bunch of sinners and we're selfish and we fight and we have conflicts and there will be hurts, there will be pain, things will be called out and it will be very messy at times. Look, I'm, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be real honest with you. I think it's safe to be, um, and I said this before, I'm gonna push it a little bit further. Some of you, I personally have failed. Some of you, I personally have hurt. And if not, then you haven't been here long enough because it's going to happen. Not because I want that, not because I long for that or strive for that, but because... We are two sinners trying to live life together. And that is an inevitable part of community together, is that we will sometimes be hurt. And we will sometimes hurt others. And we will fail one another. And I know that most of you love and trust your pastors, but listen, we will fail you. We will hurt you. It's going to happen. And I just want to be really honest about that because if not, then you're going to think something of us other than what you should. We're not proud of that. We're not seeking to do that, but it will happen. We are sinners just as much as you. So let me talk about me. It'd be really easy to come in here every week and make us all feel good and go home and have nothing to do with anyone for the rest of the week. I just rinse and repeat every week. But if I did do that, I should be shot because that'd be really easy and that honestly is really attractive at times to think about that. But instead, you you hear from me every week, sometimes two or three times, uh, maybe spend time in counseling. Uh, we confront one another in sin. We spend time in each other's homes, some of us hanging out with the, the same people, going to the same celebrations and parties. And you probably uh, hear about uh, me from time to time in conversations. You see my inconsistencies. You see my sins. I see yours. Do we seriously think we can live life that closely together and not feel the sting in those relationships from time to time? It's going to happen. And if you've been married for more than a week, you understand that. I feel it. And don't think there aren't days that in the flesh the desire is just to pack it up and be done. There are. And some of you may wish I would sometimes. But look. 
We cannot walk out on one another thinking we're going to go somewhere else and that would be the answer. And that will be okay. It's not. It's going to happen again. It might be good for a little while, but it will come. It just will. Eighty percent of pastors leave ministry within the first five years and never return. Eighty percent. And the majority say it's because they invested themselves in other people's lives and eventually got beat down relationally and it took a toll on their wife and their kids so they saw an open door and they took it for something else. And so many respond to this and say that pastors just shouldn't be that close to people in the congregation, that there needs to be some kind of distance. That counsel was given to me when I started in ministry. Don't live that open. Don't expose your life that way. That counsel is garbage. If I can't do life with you, we might as well just record sermons and send them home to you on CDs. Look, I'm not using myself to drum up a pity party for the pastors. I'm saying that I understand where your heart goes sometimes when we talk about this. Because mine goes there too. Because we've got this mess in these relationships that we constantly have to work through. And it's going to hurt. And sometimes our desire is just going to be to run and put it all behind us and say, it's just not worth it. But is Christ not worth it? Because there's also something very beautiful that happens when we do life together. We're sharpened, we're refined, we are made more holy, and we experience a greater fullness of joy. He calls us to stir up one another. It is for your good. And something amazing happens when we start getting together, when we start putting our lives together. There is ministry happening when we are together, and simply sometimes that may mean that we just are being together. But we have to fight for it. It doesn't come easy. And there is a lot of risk, right? There's a lot of risk involved. For example, verse 25 says, encourage one another. Encouraging one another is not me calling Pastor Steve and saying, Hey Steve, I prayed for you today and I hope you're doing well. See you later. Bye. That's maybe part of it, but... Real encouragement comes when we take the difficult step to actually be known. Husbands and wives get it, right? We know each other well, hopefully. So when we are discussing something and you say, what's wrong? Nothing. No, really, what's going on? What's wrong? Nothing, I'm fine. We know each other. We know something's wrong. How can I encourage you? How can you encourage me? How can we fulfill this biblical command if we have not made ourselves known? If we've shut our lives off from others and distanced ourselves? So how do we do it? We do as verse 25 commands us. We meet together. 
We do not neglect meeting together. And so this is part of it, but this is only part of it. We do so in being hospitable. We do so in, um, in our small groups. And I told you I'd get to small groups after hitting replay of the last three weeks. So we base our understanding of what we do on the Bible's assumption that significant community life exists within the church. So small groups, us gathering together weekly in someone's home is a function to fill, to fill the void uh, in the reality of this larger community where it is impossible for a person or a family to know and serve the entire congregation equally. We simply cannot know everyone in this room at the same level. But we can know a few people at that level, and it can be a very life-giving and beautiful thing. So the purpose of the small group is to develop a primary Christian community where we experience Christ together in His presence, in His power, and where lives are transformed by the gospel through mutual ministry with one another and systematic care being administered to enable Christian growth as we meet together. So Christian growth is not some kind of me and Jesus, I do this thing on my own idea. Nor is it simply I go and I do everything for everyone, but I don't receive anything. Christian growth is... I am feeding into you and you are feeding into me and there is a constant play. It's our whole lives being transformed. It's not merely personal. It includes growth as a countercultural community within a community centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these are opportunities for each of us to discover and to utilize our spiritual gifts. So here's some things that we value in terms of gospel-centered small group ministry. First is gospel community. The gospel by its very nature in transforming us and making us new creations also creates a new community. And growth in the Christian life cannot happen apart from significant, encouraging Christian relationships. The Bible assumes substantial community among the people of God. We can't escape that. Secondly, we're looking for gospel change. Listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only power that exists to transform lives. There is no other means for transformation. The gospel is the only thing in all the world that claims to make us new creations. And so we anticipate and expect gospel change as we gather in gospel community. 
And so small groups exist to apply the gospel to both believers and non-believers through worship, through study, through sharing our lives, through prayer, through serving in certain ways, maybe some projects or whatever. But these are all means that we want to utilize that we can see gospel change taking place in our midst. Thirdly, we desire to see gospel movement, that small groups are committed to multiplying and dividing. So as a group expands, as it multiplies, as more are a part of that, we hope in time to see that it should create new groups, that it should divide up into different neighborhoods, and that in time that we would see the people of God of Ephesus Church spread all throughout our city and our community, meeting in small groups in our homes as countercultural communities in neighborhoods. And so we want to actively seek to develop new leaders and new groups that we can see this taking place all around our community. So the implications of this are that we have these types of relationships we've been talking about. We have significant face-to-face relationships. And we don't just gather in homes and listen and leave, but we come prepared to participate, prepared to share. We come to have the quality of community life that God expects from the church that requires deliberate effort. And that just simply cannot happen as we meet together in the larger worship gathering on the Lord's Day. We can't assume merely by gathering together in large groups that we're able to embody the gospel or carry out all of the functions that God intends for His people to fulfill. In order to proclaim the good news credibly, we must experience face-to-face community. And so that demands of us ongoing, significant relationships, constantly and consciously pursuing Christian community and not settling for casual social environments. Requires a concrete group of people who know each other's faces, who know each other's names, who live and who regularly spend time together, who know each other's favorite foods and what we do as hobbies and what's going on in each other's lives and homes and how we can pray for each other and how we can encourage each other throughout the week. It requires being, as we see in the Bible, the church that meets in their house. And if we follow this pattern, we will be living in a very concrete way as the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And the non-believing world can look at us and be able to see that there is something different about our gatherings. And they will not be able to dismiss the Christian message so easily. Another implication is that each person sees himself or herself as capable of and committed to ministry. The Bible calls all believers to build up one another as we speak the truth in love. So the early church certainly recognized that the essence of being in the church was that every person within the body was ministering to one another face to face. So Paul assumes that when they meet together, he writes, Each one of you has a psalm, a teaching. Let 
all things be done for building up. And so he's calling on the church as they meet together to come prepared, to come ready to share your life, to come ready to encourage, to come ready to pray. So Paul is speaking of us meeting together and all participating And he assumes that all the believers were ministering to one another. But too frequently, our approach instead is is something like us going to this and saying, I go to this because I am seeking to get something out of it for myself. And that's not wrong, but it's not fully right either. The question that we should be asking is, what am I offering to this group? We should be concerned with whether or not we are striving to build up one another and speaking the truth in love, whether or not we are communicating God's love to others and being honest about ourselves and being honest with others in what we see in their lives. And if we all approached our meeting together with this mentality, it would absolutely transform our community. Not just us here, but our community at large. It will set us apart from those that simply seek to get together and study the Bible for an increase of knowledge, but fail to see any change of lives. And we must work hard at developing community. Nurtured within a culture that encourages a radical individualism, our ability to participate in robust community life is severely, severely diminished. The muscles that are required to live life together have wasted away and atrophied for many, many people because they've simply not been used. And so it's no wonder that many attempts that we make at being community are unfulfilling and subpar at best. Because most Christians are not very good at it. But this can't be an excuse for avoiding it. It's not what we're created for. And God expects it from us. Therefore, we walk in it. And we work through the unfulfillment. We walk through the mess that comes up in the midst of it and we don't run from it. We must commit ourselves to developing the muscles necessary to become God's new society. So all in all, not to be part of a smaller ministering group within the church is to not take advantage of intentional community and that is self-defeating. God's will for you is greater helpings of joy. And that comes from the benefits of mutual ministry in smaller settings. Charles Spurgeon compared those who call themselves Christians but have very little to no relationship with the church. He called them good-for-nothing bricks. Let me read a quote to you. He said, I know there are some of you who will say, well, I have given myself to the Lord, but I do not intend to give myself to the church. Now, why not? Well, because I can be a Christian without it. Are you quite sure about that? You can be as good a Christian by disobedience to your Lord's commands as by being obedient. 
What is a brick made for? To help build a house. It is of no use for that brick to tell you that it is just as good a brick while it is kicking about on the ground as it would be in the house. It is a good-for-nothing brick. So you Rolling Stone Christians, I do not believe that you are answering your purpose. You are living contrary to the life which Christ would have you live. And you are much to blame for the injury you do. Strong words. If you're a Christian, life and an active relationship within the church is not an option. The Bible simply does not give us that option. We must be actively involved in the life of the church or we will be disconnected from God's blessings for His people. The blessings that come to us and the blessings that are expressed through us. So as the text says to us today, since we have, since we have been redeemed, since we have been made new, since we have no reason to turn back to the tabernacle, but have full reason to look to the cross of Christ and to rejoice that He has accomplished all for His people, then as a result, let us, Since Christ is our great high priest and our mediator and our savior, our redeemer. Since we have no need to work and to seek to balance the scales in our favor because Christ, for the believer, hasn't balanced the scales. He has broken the scales in our favor. And since we have no need to bring offerings and blood on our own before God, but instead can plead the blood of Christ on our behalf. Because of that, since we have that, then let us draw near with confidence. Let us hold true to the gospel and not neglect one another, but dwell together and figure out how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. Encourage one another. Love each other and be known. Be known. So my challenge to you today is all of this and on top of it, why not utilize the means that we have sought to create that this can happen? Join a small group. And if there's not one that meets at a time that you can do it, then let us know and we're going to work to make it happen. But live in step with the family even though it hurts sometimes. Even though it hurts really bad sometimes. Because it's ultimately for your joy. It is for your sanctification. And it will be good for you and it will be good for everyone else. We must get beyond our hurts, we must get beyond our desire to run away and we must live life fully together or we will never grow as believers. We'll never grow. Let's commit to doing this together. Let's commit to being this type of people as the church. Let's commit to seeing our lives live together as counter-cultural community that loves, that serves, that works through difficulties and problems and fully gives ourselves to the church, to one another. Let's pray.
Father, it is heavy on our souls to consider how little we maybe love others. How little we see our need to engage our lives with others. How quickly we turn with a desire to run, to walk away, to put it behind us and move on to something else, only to find that that something else is just the same. It is so easy for us, Lord, to isolate, to withdraw, to be our own selves and not to make ourselves known. God, break us of that. Give us a holy ambition for life together in community. I pray, God, that You would give us a great desire to be together in our homes, studying, worshiping, praying, encouraging, being real, sharing our struggles, working through our hurts and our pains, being honest, making ourselves known. God, Your Word tells us that we are fully known by You. That is a great promise that is great for us to rejoice in. Father, we pray that we can be fully known to one another. That we do the hard work. We take the difficult steps to make that happen. Because, Father, we don't want to be acquaintances. We don't want to be friends. We want to be family. We want Your family to be our family. Not just in name, but in actuality. Father, I pray for our small groups. I pray, God, that all of us would find our way into one of those and that we would multiply those and we would divide those. We would expand and then we would break down and we would continue to get into each other's lives. Help us to know how to do that. Give us wisdom in that as we walk toward it. Father, first and foremost, I pray that You give us all a great desire and conviction that we need this. We need this. And it is a gift to be able to have a structure for it. Lord, we love You. We love Your commands. And we pray that You help us to see them as for our good and not for our detriment. Not that we would be miserable. That we would experience the fullness of joy in Christ Jesus. Lord, do Your work with Your Word today. We pray. Thank You in Jesus' name. Amen.